Hi, I'm Valina Wright, host of It's Time You Knew, a podcast aimed at improving women's health. This first episode, during Women's History Month, honors Madame Curie, the first woman to win a Nobel Prize, not once, but twice, in two different fields, chemistry and physics. Her work with the medical applications of radioactive substances made her famous and sadly led to her demise from radiation damage to the bone marrow. My guest today, Dr. Andrea McKee, is an award-winning radiation oncologist and chairwoman of Leahy Health and Medical Center's Radiation Oncology Program. She's going to explain to us how sometimes radiation can be so dangerous, yet at other times life-saving. My guest today is Dr. Andrea McKee, a radiation oncologist who did her postgraduate training at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York, and for the past 10 years has been the chairwoman of the Department of Radiation Oncology at Leahy Hospital and Medical Center. More importantly, she is also a dear friend, and she is my once-a-year ski instructor. And I would like to <laughs> remind you of the chairlift instructions and me sitting at the bottom of the hill watching you go up with our friends. <laughs> so I would like to thank you for being a guest on my podcast and also for waiting for me at the top of the hill. <laughs> it is always best to get on the chair. <laughs> bottom of the hill. <laughs> yeah, my ego was like hurt a little bit on that one. <laughs> but I'm so glad that you joined me. I'm very excited. Um, the purpose of the podcast is to help our patients understand better some of the medical terminology and experiences they may encounter as patients um, diagnosed with cancer. As you know, cancer is the second leading cause of death only behind heart disease, with more than half a million deaths a year in the United States. And of those patients, half end up receiving some form of radiation as part of their cancer treatment. So to start, can you just tell us in simple terms what radiation used to treat cancer patients is, how it works? Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a great question. So radiation is, is something that most people are pretty unfamiliar with. It's, it's sort of like a black box. Um, even most physicians, I would say, are not that familiar with what radiation is. Yet it's something that we're all routinely exposed to. Every day you walk out into the outdoors, you're exposed to the radiation of the sun. It's, a, it's not quite as penetrating as the radiation that we use to treat cancer cells because the sun's radiation um, is a different energy profile. Um, so it only goes to the surface of the skin. And we all are familiar with the effects of sun on our skin. Um, but the type of radiation we use is a little bit more penetrating, so it can deposit radiation into the body. And specifically, we use radiation to target cancer cells in order to eradicate cancer cells from a particular area. So radiation is something that is invisible. We don't see it. We don't taste it. We don't smell it. We don't make patients radioactive with external beam radiation, which is radiation that is created in the head of a machine called a linear accelerator. It passes through the patient, interacts with the cells where we direct it, and then passes beyond the patient. So it doesn't, it doesn't stay in the patient. Um, but what happens when the radiation interacts with cancer cells is it creates a break in the DNA, which is the instruction manual of the cell. And that break means that that cell becomes dysfunctional and that 
that break can't be repaired in cancer cells because cancer cells have defective DNA repair mechanisms. Our normal cells, however, if they interact with the DNA, they know how to fix themselves. Just like every day when you go out in the sun, your skin repairs itself after having been exposed to the sun's radiation. So that's the process that's happening when we're delivering radiation. Your normal cells undergo repair and the cancer cells die. So when, when patients are reluctant to even go for a consult because of this fear of radiation, it's often an unrealistic fear and, and not knowing what to expect. When they are referred or I send someone for a consult, I try to explain to them in very basic terms that radiation is targeting a, a particular part of their body where cancer is present. Of all the cancers that you treat, what is the most common cancer treated with radiation? I'm a women's health specialist, so I do specialize in gynecologic cancers and breast cancer, um, but I also treat lung cancer and other types of cancer. So the I would say in any radiation department, the most people undergoing radiation at any given time have diagnoses of breast and prostate cancer because it's very common to use radiation to treat breast and prostate cancer but also lung cancer is fairly common, rectal cancer, endometrial cancer. Um, radiation is used to treat all of those disease sites. There's some cancers that we don't use radiation to treat. We don't use radiation to treat many leukemias or what we call liquid uh, tumors. Uh, we don't use radiation typically for colon cancer, although we do for rectal. So every cancer is different in, the, in how we work the cancer up and how we treat the cancers. And the way that we treat cancer, thank goodness, is based on a very solid evidence base. Um, cancer, one of the things that drew me to radiation oncology was the fact that when we make recommendations for patients about X treatment or Y treatment, it's, it's essentially based on a randomized controlled trial that has investigated the role of radiation in the treatment of that cancer. So we can be very clear as to what we're hoping to accomplish and what are the potential side effects of treatment because of the incredible evidence base that um, has already happened decades before I even started um, in clinical practice. And that makes me feel good that we're not just sort of, you know, guessing. Maybe we'll do a little of this or maybe we'll do a little of that. We we know what we're doing and why in in every circumstance it's um, it's, it's, it's specific to that situation. So unless we have a really rare cancer where it's difficult to conduct those trials, we often have very solid data that we can counsel patients and counsel women about um, their treatment options and, and what we're doing and why we're doing it. When patients prepare for a radiation consult, often uh, the first visit is for a session referred to as simulation. Can you explain what simulation means? Absolutely. So, um, so, so the very first visit with us is a, is consultation, and that's where we meet the patient, we examine the patient. Although with COVID now, often we're meeting the patient over video conference, and then actually examining the patient when they come in for the day of simulation. But they typically are two separate visits. The consultation is the day that we counsel the patient, we go over the options, we decide together in a shared decision-making visit with the patient what she feels is best for her based on our conversation and discussion of, of the different approaches that we might be able to take. And then they come usually 
within a couple of days for the simulation appointment, which is where we gather all the information that we need to know about the patient in order to program that machine to deliver the treatment. So as I mentioned, radiation is typically delivered by a machine called a linear accelerator when we're doing external radiation. That's when radiation is coming from the outside in. And then there's also brachytherapy, which is treatment where we actually are treating with an applicator from the inside out when it comes to gynecologic cancers. We actually insert the applicator into the patient and apply the radiation directly to the area at risk. And that's very retargeted radiation. In either case, in order to do those treatments, we have to program a machine to tell it what to do. And that's a process that is very involved. It includes an entire team of people, not just the radiation physician, but also radiation physicists, radiation therapists, and radiation dosimetrists. And the the patient doesn't see all of these people. The patient usually just sees the physician and, and the therapist, but there's a whole group of people that are involved in making sure that radiation is delivered appropriately. So I'm glad that you mentioned it's a team approach. Any cancer patient at our hospital, once they have a newly established diagnosis of cancer, goes to a multidisciplinary oncology or cancer meeting where all the experts that treat that cancer meet and come up with a a treatment plan. And I think that's really important so that we have input from all the different specialties that are involved in a patient's care. So it's not only the gynecologist, if it's a women's cancer, it's also the pathologist, the radiologist that is an expert at looking at images and medical oncology and radiation oncology, as well as social workers too, so that there is a comprehensive treatment plan in place for for patients. One of the prognostic factors that can be associated with success with radiation treatments is patient compliance. And we know, for example, that if patients aren't able to keep those daily Monday through Friday meetings that can impact their care. So again, it's, it's a really comprehensive plan that's important for the patients. In addition to having an understanding of, of radiation, is there any other instructions that you think are really important for a patient to be doing on their own at home during the radiation treatment? So of course, you know, we want to support the patient in all aspects of their care and life. It can be very challenging going through a course of radiation treatment. Yeah, coming Typically, external radiation is given over the course of several weeks. Oftentimes, with most gynecologic cancers, it's it, it can be five and a half weeks, up to eight weeks of um, treatment, where often you're coming in every day, Monday through Friday. And, and so having support at home is obviously ideal. We don't, we, we, we don't always have those situations and, and that can be particularly challenging. As you mentioned, you know, patients who, who don't have that psychosocial support at home, we worry tremendously about those patients when we first meet with them. When it's one of the conversations that we have is, you know, who's helping you through this? Because it can be hard getting back and forth to treatment every day over that length of time, depending upon the diagnosis and the treatment plans. For some patients, the treatment is, is, is pretty straightforward and they can pretty much drive to and from treatment by themselves, um, come in, the treatment takes 10 or 15 minutes. I tell patients about 45 minutes out of your day and um, they can work really full-time throughout radiation. So there's that 
end of treatment um, to the other end of treatment where sometimes we're doing radiation and chemotherapy concurrently. Anytime we're adding chemotherapy to the radiation regimen, that's going to be a little bit more difficult and challenging. And those are the patients where we worry about, okay, how are we going to get through this? Who's at home to help with the day-to-day and the challenges of getting through a course of combined chemo radiotherapy. So those are all the things that we talk about with patients when we first meet with them. I tell patients that their mental health obviously is important. We were very fortunate at our facility. We have a psycho-oncologist who is a psychologist who is dedicated to working with patients who are going through cancer specifically because cancer patients have unique needs as they're going through just a diagnosis of cancer and then the treatment itself and then the issues into their survivorship. So we're lucky to be able to offer that to our patients. I tell patients nutrition is very important, um, protein specifically. We talked in the beginning about how patients are undergoing DNA repair between radiation treatments of their normal tissue, and that requires the building blocks of that DNA repair mechanism, which is, which is typically protein, amino acids. And so we talk about protein intake, we talk about exercise and how important that is for cardiac output and improving oxygenation of tissues, which is important in the radiation treatment mechanism, as well as exercise as a means of of dealing with anxiety and sense of well-being throughout radiation. So those are the things that I, I tend to talk to patients about. The other thing that's really important, which is always a difficult conversation, is you know some of our patients are tobacco users. And so women who smoke at diagnosis, and then if we're unable to to help render them to be tobacco-free throughout their course of radiation, that's that's very worrisome to me. Tobacco and nicotine has been proven to make radiation less effective. So our oncologic outcomes in terms of cure rates are inferior for women who smoke during radiation versus those who are tobacco-free. And tobacco also increases the complications associated with radiation treatment. So I really work hard with women who smoke cigarettes or use other tobacco products uh, at the initial diagnosis to try to help them to become tobacco-free during radiation. It's it's a difficult, difficult thing, though. As you know, it, the tobacco is incredibly addictive, and there's a lot of anxiety around the time of a cancer diagnosis and getting through cancer treatment, and, and so it's a particularly difficult time to beat addiction. So we do what we can to support women with that issue and, and, and at least let them know the facts about their diagnosis and treatment relative to tobacco use. So those are probably the big things that we touch upon in terms of getting through treatment. And, and I always tell patients, um, I, I ask about what they do in general to relieve stress. Um, most women don't even think about that, really. They don't think, okay, you know, I exercise every day or I... I bead or I draw or I listen to music or I like candles or I go to the beach. You know, in general, we don't think about the things that help us to relieve stress. And in general, when we're diagnosed with cancer, we we don't embrace those things. We we think we don't think to do the things that normally relax us when we're in crisis. So I try to remind them, you know, particularly as we're getting gearing up and getting ready for treatment, you know think about those things, do those things, allow yourself to feel relaxed because that's not helping or serving you to just be feeling anxious all of the time. So dealing with the anxiety associated with the diagnosis and the upcoming treatment is a big part of of what we work with women on in the initial stages. 
I think that's really important because anxiety and fear can get in the way to the point where patients don't show up for treatment sometimes. So yeah. anything we can do to address that, because sometimes their fears are based on misconceptions or yeah. they're just the fear of the unknown. And once they've shown yes. up once and done the first treatment or the second treatment, everything just becomes so much easier. So when Absolutely. things are difficult, I think one of the the biggest things is just taking that first step towards starting treatment. Helena, I can't tell you how many times I've had this conversation with patients. I have patients who show up day one and they literally, they just tell me, I can't do it. I can't do it. And, you know, we take a deep breath and sometimes we use a little Ativan, which is, which is a relaxant. Sometimes they can't do it that day, but we get them to come in the next day and we, we, you know, try some techniques to relax them and, and, and we're able to get them through. And once they get through that first day, they don't need anything else moving right. forward. But as you said, they, they now, it's just that initial fear of not knowing what to expect. And once they've gotten through and into that pattern, they're fine. So we definitely see that. The other thing that I see a lot in women, especially in young women, when they're told they have a cancer is, they're focused on the cancer to the exclusion of everything else, their future fertility, perhaps mm -hmm. their sex life and the impact treatment may or may not have on their sex life. They sometimes are, are so fearful. They're only thinking about surviving. They're in survival mode, but mm -hmm. it's actually a disservice for a lot of these young women with a new diagnosis of cancer not to have the conversation about future fertility and if they need to see a specialist in fertility and endocrine for other options if the treatment is going to impact their fertility. And also OBGYNs in, in general don't address women's sexual problems to start with very well. So when it comes to cancer and everybody's focused on the cancer, that can often go even further down on the list of things that need to be addressed. Is there anything that you tell patients being treated specifically for gynecologic cancers related to the impact that treatment might have on their sex life? Absolutely. Well, first of all, gynecologic cancers are in the pelvis and, and the ovaries are not always removed depending upon the gynecologic cancer. And so if the ovaries remain in the pelvis, then we will make patients postmenopausal because the ovaries are extremely sensitive to radiation. And so if a woman is already not in menopause, they, they will be put into menopause unless we, we transpose the ovaries and move them into the upper abdomen, which is something that we ask you, uh, the GYN oncologist to do. And then they can continue to stay premenopausal in terms of estrogen output. So that's a, that's a big part of the conversation and discussion. Um, and then the other issue is the vagina itself is sensitive to radiation. Uh, the vagina actually can take pretty high doses of radiation, but sometimes for some cancers that we treat, we, we have to use particularly high doses of radiation. And so the vagina can be affected. And interestingly enough, one of the ways that we counsel women after they're expected to receive brachytherapy where the, where high doses of radiation can be given to the vagina is that they need to be either sexually active after treatment. It's kind of like vaginal physical therapy, if you will, or we provide them with a dilator, which is like an oversized tampon that we ask them to insert into the vagina on a regular basis so that they are basically doing this vaginal PT or vaginal physical therapy 
And so that's a conversation for with any patient in whom we're anticipating that that might be an issue, that that's happening at the initial consultation when we're advising them about the potential side effects associated with treatment. And some women, particularly women, uh, older women who are postmenopausal, who perhaps may not have been sexually active for a while, they look aghast at me <laughs> when I tell them that uh, we're going to be giving them a dilator to use. But uh, it is very important, as you know, for follow-up of these patients that we're able to examine the vaginal cuff area or um, be able to look into the vagina to to survey the area to make sure there isn't a recurrence. And so that's one of the things that we talk about that, you know, we're not, we're not asking you to do this because we expect that you're going to become sexually active, you know, at, at some point in your future, although they might, but we also do this because we need to be able to monitor the area uh, as part of their follow-up for, for the cancer treatment. Yeah, that's that's great advice. The vagina, really, it's a potential space. So the front and back walls of the vagina naturally are against each other. And just the process of inserting something into the vagina prevents adhesions and it from scarring so that it won't open. And to be able to feel deep in the pelvis during a gynecologic exam, if that is completely closed or scarred shut, it limits the exam. Yeah, right. You can only tell so much yeah. in that situation. Right. So Sometimes that can, can be um, resolved by an examination under anesthesia where we can free adhesions and scar tissue, but it's always better to prevent a problem than to try and try and cure it. On that segue, I know, uh, Andrea, that you've done a lot of work. You are the co-founder and president of Rescue Lung Rescue Life. Can you tell me a little bit about that program? Absolutely, yes. This is something that I've been involved with for the past uh, 10 years now, um, is, is lung cancer screening. Most most women don't even realize that lung cancer is actually the number one cancer killer of women. Lung cancer claims more lives of American women than does breast, ovarian, and uterine cancers combined, which is shocking. People just don't really think about that. But uh, lung cancer is just very common. And in the absence of screening, unfortunately, lung cancer presents typically at the later stages of disease. And so it's, it's highly lethal. But with screening, which is now a low-dose CT scan of the chest, about 85% of the time we're finding lung cancer in its earliest stages. If a woman is entered into a screening program the way that they do, for example, for breast screening, where every year they're coming in and having a mammogram, once they've gotten through that initial phase of the first screen, 85% of the time we find early stage lung cancer. And early stage lung cancer is highly curable, like 90%, which is something people never think of when they think of lung cancer because of the past and what they're used to with the disease and the absence of screening. So we've been uh, very vocal about trying to raise awareness. The Rescue Lung Rescue Life Society is a, a nonprofit organization that is dedicated to raising awareness about the power of CT lung screening to save lives of women. Um, I've also been involved with the American Lung Association's Lung Force Campaign, which is specifically about raising awareness of um, lung cancer for women. It's a, it's a w- woman's campaign. And so um, this is something that kind of just naturally fell into uh, my work as a women's health specialist. And we've have a very active program um, having screened thousands of women um, at, at our 
hospital and detected about, I was just looking at the data earlier today, we've detected over almost 250 lung cancers. And as I mentioned, um, in the later stages, once a patient is in the screening program, 85% are stage one or two lung cancer, and that's highly curable. So it's, it's, it's an incredible advance. It, it, we're sort of at the time right now with lung cancer where we were when we first started breast screening. And none of us were even really, you know, or I wasn't around in medicine when breast cancer screening started. So it's just an amazingly powerful tool to be able to save lives. And um, we're hoping to get the message out. So for patients who, it's actually risk-based. So for patients who have a history of tobacco use, so those are women who have smoked between 20 and 30 pack years for at least, which means one pack per day times 20 years or two packs per day times 10 years. That's, that's what a pack year is. You take the number of, of packs per day times the number of years smoked um, who are 50 and older. Those are the patients in whom they should be talking with their doctors about lung cancer screening. So that's been something that has been incredibly rewarding to, to be involved with the, the rolling out of lung cancer screening in the United States. And now, of course, Europe and other countries are also um, rolling out lung cancer screening as well. No, I think that's an amazing advance. It's so important that women understand that they have options for screening mm -hmm. that can prevent uh, such a devastating diagnosis that is not, in the majority of cases, curable at late stages. Exactly. There's such a difference, early stage versus late stage, when it comes to lung cancer. I think also um, for screening tests for cancer, People sometimes are, are reluctant to undergo screening and they think it's unnecessary. And it's so hard for me to see patients that I treat for cancers that I know should have been prevented, but people Gosh, yeah. made the choice not to have screening or perhaps they didn't make the choice or they didn't have the background knowledge or, or even perhaps access to care. Right. I wanted to ask about COVID-19's impact and access to cancer care for radiation oncology. Have you seen any impact in your practice since the pandemic has started March of, of last year now? So we're in New England. So the surgeon in this area in Massachusetts um, was in March, April, and the surge was pretty dramatic where the hospitals, our hospital included, were really overrun with COVID cases such that we had to shut down non-essential practices, including surgeries, um, including screening. We, we, we weren't doing breast screening. We weren't doing lung cancer screening. Um, we basically just had to kind of get control of the situation in order to not completely overwhelm the hospitals. So that has led to, and there have been publications since that time, that during that period of time, there were delays in diagnosis for certain cancers. And that's, of course, awful. That was a very difficult and challenging time. We were also triaging in radiation oncology because we were just trying to keep the numbers down of patients presenting to the hospital. So we were trying to delay any cases that could have a delay in initiation of radiation treatment. And every day we were meeting and going over these issues and working with the, the various societies to try to come up with guidelines and recommendations, because of course it was unprecedented where, you know, normally we're about getting people in, in a, in a very efficient and timely fashion. So that was probably one of the most difficult times in my professional life was that, that 
spring surge and the decisions that we were having to make and the, 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 the suffering that we were seeing, um, at the hospital. And, and then, you know, we've, we've come a long way. We've, we've learned the value of masks, uh, which none of us really doubted in medicine to begin with, but, um, the importance of wearing a mask in terms of reducing transmission and, and keeping people safe has since worn out. And of course we have masks in the beginning, we didn't even have appropriate protective equipment in the hospitals. And so now we have, um, we're in a better situation because they have protocols and we have equipment to be able to manage patients, even COVID positive patients. So initially when we were first dealing with this in the spring, we were like, okay, what do we do when we have a COVID positive patient who needs radiation? Like we, because we didn't want to risk exposing all of the other immune suppressed patients in the department to COVID. So we had to kind of really think about how we were going to handle those situations. And thankfully we have figured it out and we've treated many COVID positive patients in the department and we've worked out protocols. They, they go, they are treated at the end of the day so that uh, all the other patients have already left the department and then the, the rooms are completely sterilized and, and cleaned uh, before the next day and the other patients arrive. So we do now feel we're not having to delay patients. We're not having to not offer treatment to patients who are COVID positive, And we're in a much better place and better prepared to deal with this second surge that we're now dealing with. And we're not delaying screening either. So screening came back online in mid-summer. So in, the, in July, we started doing breast screening and lung cancer screening. And it took us a little while to actually get that backlog all up to where they needed to be. But now we're, we're pretty much on schedule with all of our cancer screenings and no one's planning at this time to halt that. That's really important. I know from our experience in gynecologic oncology, there's a lot of data to show that diagnoses have been delayed um, mm -hmm. from studies across the country. I think one of the most impressive data sets for us is Kaiser in uh, mm -hmm. California. California, yeah. Yeah, they showed a one-third decrease in the rate of new uterine cancer diagnosis from the spring of 2019 to 2020. And it wasn't that the services weren't available for patients to come in and be seen. They all were part of Kaiser with insurance and the hospital systems weren't closed, but patients were fearful of coming to the hospital due to concerns right. of COVID. And right. I, I think it's worth emphasizing that there are very good protocols in place now and all of us are much more comfortable. And there's, if, if you have symptoms especially, you should not be delaying seeing your doctor at this point. Some of the screening tests, there's still a little bit of a, a backlog for some diagnostic procedures, not screening per se. But it's very hard. A lot of telehealth medicine has mm -hmm. occurred, but for GYN, that's still a bit of an issue. Oh, the exam is so critical for yeah. GYN, absolutely. And, you know, we've all been there. I mean... I'm there every day as well as the other, you know, we probably have a hundred people in the two radiation departments that I'm involved with. We're there every day seeing patients all day long and even treating some COVID positive patients yet, you know, we're not contracting the disease. So with the appropriate social distancing in the exam rooms and um, you know, the masks and the face shields and everything that we're doing, we're able to keep people safe in the hospitals. Um, and I think that's really a very important message for patients to hear. Agree. 
Can you explain uh, what is a typical day in your life as a radiation oncologist? Sure. So I get up and it's dark now <laughs> in New England. Unfortunately, I hate that. Um, but I, I try to get up early. I try to exercise before work because once the day gets going and um, we've gotten through the entire day, it, it, by the time we get home, it's just exhausting. Um, we're usually work, the workday starts around 7am for, um, typically conferences because patients often aren't coming in that early at seven. So we have multidisciplinary conferences that you mentioned from, from seven to eight, and then patient care begins around eight o'clock. And, um, I see patients, radiation oncology is primarily outpatient. So patients are coming in and out of the department all day. I see new patients who have just been diagnosed with cancer. I see follow-up patients and patients who I've treated sometimes years ago who come to see me for surveillance. And then I have patients who are on treatment who we see once a week. So there's an opportunity to examine them and ask questions as they're going through their radiation treatment. And then there are also times when we're going to the operating room where we may be implanting radiation um, into a patient in order to deliver radiation intraoperatively. And then there are patients who are undergoing simulation, which we mentioned earlier is when we gather all the information about them to target the machines. And then there's the treatment planning process, which is all that work that goes into actually delivering a patient's care, which from basically from simulation to the start of treatment is typically about seven business days because it requires a lot of work between the physician and the physicist and the dosimetrist to get that plan perfect before we actually uh, beam on and treat a patient. So that's pretty much what we do throughout the day. And we end up getting home around six. So medicine has, has changed dramatically from the pandemic with telehealth and uh, a lot of care now occurring outside of the hospital per se. But when you look back and you remember the day that you graduated medical school and took the Hippocratic Oath, what part of that oath remains most meaningful to you? I would have to say the part that I love the most is about prevention. And it depends on the Hippocratic Oath. There's a variety of different Hippocratic Oaths out there. And one of the more modern ones says, I will prevent disease whenever I can for prevention is preferable to cure. And when you, because you literally just said that when we were talking about the vaginal dilator. And I, I do believe that. And that's part of why I'm so passionate about lung cancer screening, that early prevention and detection is, is how we make the greatest impacts because we can actually impact an entire population as opposed to just an individual patient. Um, but interestingly, I knew you were going to ask about the Hippocratic Oath. So I did a search. I looked up the original Hippocratic Oath. Yes. It's, it's, there's a few old versions <laughs> that are old for a good reason. <laughs> oh my gosh. Have you have you looked at it recently? Yes, <laughs> I have. <laughs> and thank goodness they changed it. As, as a female <laughs> physician, it's a little hard to take. It talks all about, um, about your sons and, your, and, and men and brothers and this, that, and the other thing, because of, of course it was from the time of uh, back with Hippocrates and, um, and it really is, uh, is, is very male dominated. One of the, I have to read this one line that I read. 
whatever houses I may visit, I will come for the benefit of the sick, remaining free of all intentional injustice, of all mischief, and in particular of sexual relations with both female and male persons, be they free or slaves. It was also, there's a version, so I'm a surgeon, as you know, and there's a version that says you cannot open the human body. <laughs> so yeah, that's right. slightly outdated as well. <laughs> I will not use the knife, not even on sufferers from stone, but will withdraw in favor of such men as are engaged in this work. <laughs> that's, that's what it says. So, I mean, clearly uh, there was some need for some, some revision. I had to say, I, I love the line, prevention is better than cure. And I'll put a yes. plug for my book because it's the first, um, it's a little quote at the very beginning of my book that I wrote. And the book is called, It's Time You Knew the Power of Your Choices to Prevent Women's Cancer. And I was motivated to write it because I see so much suffering from cancer when so much of it could be prevented through screening, mm-hmm. not just through screening, but also for women speaking up when something's wrong and right. listening to their own intuition and asking when things are wrong. And if things are wrong and they're not getting fixed, then second opinion. Yeah. There's <laughs> like a lot of delayed diagnosis in mm-hmm. women's health. And I think it's really important for us to have conversations that help people understand what is normal and what's not what's not normal. Like people normalize bleeding. Some people will have abnormal bleeding where they're soaking bed sheets and they come in and describe that and they think it's normal just because they've lived with it for so long or for whatever whatever reason. Anyway, I'm so glad that you were a guest for me and uh, I can't wait for my next ski instruction. It's how we get through winters in New England for sure. (laughs) Thanks so much, Andrea. Thank you and congratulations on your book. It's wonderful. Thanks for listening. Andrea and I hope understanding radiation helps you show up with confidence for radiation treatments, treatments that have the potential to deliver cancer cures. Madame Curie would be impressed with the scientific advances. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can visit my website, valinawrightmd.com, and subscribe by email to receive the top five ways to improve your health and wellness or direct message me on Instagram. Thanks for listening. It's time you knew.